Hello out there in the Pottoverse. Welcome to Weaver's Circle, the interview podcast for the Weave the Tale Twitch channel. I am your host, Spence, and on this show, we will be talking with the channel's game masters, casts of the game, and the designers of the games that are being played. Trooper, welcome to Weaver's Circle. Hello, thank you for having me. So, um... I'm so excited to have you on to talk about Fate of Cthulhu, but I'd like to start with uh, giving our audience a bit of a view of who you are and what your introduction into the RPG community has been. Oh, gosh. Um, I am... <laughs> that's, oh, ooh, that's a question. I am a, a GM and a player. I started... I was introduced to RPGs before I played them, as many people did. I was probably eight or nine and my babysitter was playing. She would sometimes invite her f- boyfriend and her friends over uh, when they were babysitting me. And they right. would play Dungeons and Dragons. And I would sit and watch them. Uh, and I thought that was very cool. And she said to me, you know, she said, you might be a really good GM one day. And I was like, eight or nine. I was like, well, this cool. Because my babysitter was super cool. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, play Dungeons and Dragons. And she was neat and everything. And she had crystals. I don't know. She was cool. So I was like, Fun oh. fact, kids, babysitters are the coolest people you will ever know. It's super true. And so I was like always intri- intrigued by Dungeons and Dragons since then, like since that moment. And I was like, I'm going to be a DM one day. And um, right, it was like 80, 1983 when uh, the Red Box was out and mm-hmm. it was on sale, the Red Box for D&D original, and it was new cover. And it was on sale at Toys R Us, like mm-hmm. half off. And I had no money, but I've been saving, saving, saving. And I saved up enough to sort of buy that red box, basic D&D. And there was a solo adventure in there. And I played it. And I was like, this is great. And so I, I've been playing since then. I, you know, I, from there, like, I found people in middle school. We played. Um, it was a very toxic environment, D&D in the 1980s. And I moved on to other, other game systems. Uh, the mm-hmm. first big two that I moved on to were uh, GURPS and Call of Cthulhu. And mm. I've been playing since then. I have been really lucky. I, I joined the military. And so I was, I've been really lucky to be able to play with a lot of different people in a lot of different places. And I have played a lot of different systems. And it has basically become uh, a bit of my, well, I don't want to say obsession, that seems so strong. Uh, uh, but I would say a bit of my interest to play or GM um, and this is sort of developed as I went on, all of the major systems and trends, or at least representatives mm-hmm. of each one that have come out. And I've really sort of come to study the the history of the hobby, sort of understanding. And I think some of this came out about in the 90s when there were a bunch of turf wars happening in the RPG realm uh, right. between different styles. And I became very interested in, in the different styles and what people were saying, mainly because I always sort of fall in between the cracks. And so I've basically for quite some time now been really interested in how the hobby has developed, what the main trends are, uh, what are the stories we tell about our hobby and how those stories may or may not be true, who is forgotten in those stories, um, mm-hmm. and sort of uncovering a kind of like a different um, sort of sometimes hidden histories and trying to be my best GM self and or player self. And for me, that means if you say to me, will you GM or play a really old school dungeon crawl that I know what that means and can do it? Or can you GM or play a really modern uh, sort of no rules, no dice storytelling game and that I know what that means and that I can do it? Or that if you ask me for recommendations, that mm-hmm. I can make a good recommendation that would be good for you personally, right? So if you say, like, I really want a game that's like this, this, and this, and this, I'd be like, oh, 
Jane Austen? Right. You should try Good Society uh, because that's the um, one. That game is so much fun. It's so Sorry. good. It's so good. It's so good. So good. Yeah. And so that's that's kind of where I'm at that I really am. I try to understand the hobby in a sort of a larger way and figure out, like, you know, just gain skills and, and knowledge. And, and that's always been, oh, I should probably say in my daytime job, I'm a professor. So there's a, <laughs> a university professor. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is you are eventually going to write a book about the history of RPGs and I am going to narrate it and edit it and it's yes. going to be great, uh, right? Yes. Although, although, because I'm a, kind of like a, a, a cultural theorist, it will probably be less, it'll be historical, but it'll probably be about um, what's at stake, right? Like, I mean, mm -hmm. so for example, this is like a, a small thing, but when... Um, D&D has always been the dominator of the market, always, 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 from 1974 onwards, because, you know, it started the whole thing, and it's always been up there. Um, and also, it's been a niche hobby, and it still is, despite its sort of popularity, it's still a small hobby. And people who play it often feel are often outsiders. And I remember in the 90s when Vampire happened, uh, Vampire the Masquerade, and a bunch of new people came into the hobby, which I thought was great, but some people did not think was great. And then it was when I really started hearing, oh, well, that's not role-playing, right? Like, you're not a real role-player. That's not real role-playing. And all of a sudden, these kind of weird struggles and tensions over what it is, what is the hobby? And these struggles and tensions continue, of course, to this day. And I'm sure they're happening in the 70s as well, uh, between, say, because Arneson and Gygax had very different styles of what they were doing. And so just sort of like thinking about what's at stake for people, what does it mean? Um, what does, how do we do inclusion? How have we done it in the past? What are the fantasies that we tell ourselves, the imaginations we have? Why do we imagine that D&D in the past or role-playing games in the past was like X when it, nothing is ever like X? It's always like X plus Y plus Z plus A and C. Uh, and like, why do we erase women from the 1970s in the RPG hobby, right? right? And people do that both from both a conservative and a progressive side, right? There's a tendency to say, oh, in the past, it was bad because there were no women and there were no people of color, but now it is good because we have all these things. And I was like, oh, oh, hold on, point of order. <laughs> there, there, yeah. there were women and people of color in the past too. And so erasing those people of color and women from the past to make the present seem more progressive or to create a past that doesn't have those people so you can be nostalgic about it, you know, either whether you're coming from a, a progressive or a regressive space, right? It's not good to erase those people from the past, one or the other. So I'm always thinking about what does it mean to, to, to what kind of fantasies are we creating about the hobby? What kind of fantasies have we internalized? Um, and what do they mean? And, and what can we do about it? Right. So like that's, it'd be a bit more that way. <laughs> I think but, how I would put it. Um, but still, those are definitely topics that are worth, um, not worth, but uh, makes the door open a yeah. bit more um, in current day. You know, mm -hmm. you have empty seats at the table. Right. You want to make sure that everybody who wants mm -hmm. in can can fill those spots yes and and i do want to eventually get to the game but you said something that that struck a cold with me first of all thank you for your service where what oh. branch were you in uh army hey what's up battle what um, yeah let's all go right. all right all right did you do any role playing while you were in the service i did actually uh i was military intelligence is what i did um, ah yep yep uh which maybe 
one of the reasons why I tend to run a lot of espionage campaigns in my RPGs. I don't know. Um, hey, but, you know. You, you know. Uh, but hey, hey, fellow battle buddy. I'm so excited about that. What's that's, up? That's so nice. Yeah. Oh, like, oh. yeah. So, um, like, I had a hard time. I never found any role-playing groups um, where I was stationed. Mm. I was always um, I was always the person in the common room mm-hmm. uh, kicking everybody's butt at Street Fighter. This was like, <laughs> this was early 2000s. Yeah, so. yeah. But I've heard from other battle buddies who were stationed in like Kuwait or mm-hmm. in other places in the sandbox and mm-hmm. how they found their role-playing groups uh, during those missions. And that was the way that they got distracted from yeah. where they were. Yeah. Um, how was that experience for you? Oh, you know, um, I have to say it's really fascinating because I think about, again, uh, my mind, right, the history and and imaginations. Um, Mm -hmm. We now are living in a moment of streamed RPGs, and there are people who are, I suppose, less excited about the sort of the the arrival of streamed RPGs in the in the hobby, and they will say things like, "Oh, well, this is not good because because of streamed RPGs, people now do X, Y, or Z, right? They play like this." because it's for a stream and that's not what real gaming is like. Whenever people say real, I'm always like, ooh, interesting. I'm going to check that out because I bet there's weirdness there. Um, yeah. And so there's a lot of things that people would say, oh, that's, you know, oh, we don't like this. And uh, what's fascinating to me is that a number of those things are things that I was doing because I was in the military in the 90s, well before streaming. Um, mm-hmm. And I think one of the best examples of this is running your game mm-hmm. in seasons rather than just unending games forever. Um I know a lot of stream games will say, hey, we're going to do like 12 episode seasons, or they might do longer ones, but a lot of times they'll do like between 10 and and 15 uh, seasons of a show. Mm -hmm. And I've heard people say, oh, that's just not how, that's not how games are run at home. And that's not real gaming because it's turning it into a TV show and that's not how it is. And I thought the first time I started doing that was in the 90s when I was in the army. And Mm -hmm. it was because for a couple of reasons, but the army is quite transient, right? You are going to, you're going to be in a place for a certain amount of time. Um, Maybe it's a year, maybe it's less, it might be two or three years, but even if you're going to be in one place for two or three years, the people you're stationed with did not arrive at the same time as you and people are going to be coming in and out. And even if you are in a place for two or three years, you might be sent off to temporary duty or to be in the field. And um, I had this amazing group in Germany we had about seven people, and out of that seven people, ooh, I would say four or five of us were GMs as well. Maybe, I mean, really, mm-hmm. honestly, about six of us were GMs, but about four of us were sort of people who did that were forever GMs. And because of this sort of transitory nature of being in the military and because we had so many GMs, what we decided to do was that rather than having what was the practice before, my in my experience was like, hey, do you want to play D&D or Call of Cthulhu or whatever? And then you just play forever. I mean, just <laughs> as, as a side note, for the record, I am not currently playing, but technically might am still affiliated with a campaign that might be one of the longest running campaigns in the world um, that's still ongoing. And um, if you know the Beyond the Mountains of Madness uh, campaign adventure that was written in the 80s by uh, Jan and Chaz Engen, uh, which mm-hmm. is sort of one of these, it's one of the big famous ones like Mass of Narlathotep and, and Hori and the Ore Express, uh, but I don't know if it's given as much talk about nowadays because it hasn't been reprinted. Nonetheless, she, Janice Engen, was my GM uh, in this campaign and she helped keep me in the hobby after kind of the toxicity of some of the D&D circles. But she started that Call of Cthulhu campaign in 1980, I think, 81, 82, and it is still ongoing. So like, there's that model where you, where you have a campaign that spans, you know, 40 years and 
you know, dozens and dozens of players, but that is special, but that also is very challenging in certain ways. And in the, in the military, in my army group, we did not have that. Right. So we Mm -hmm. moved to a model where each one of us would basically GM for about 10 to 12 sessions Mm-hmm. And then we would switch, right? So I was running um, GURPS Espionage at the time. I was one of the main right. core three. So I would run about 12 sessions, which is about enough, enough time to get a really good arc in of this espionage campaign. One of the other GMs would run uh, Vampire the Masquerade. The third GM would mm-hmm. run Star Wars. And then the fourth slot would be open to one of the other people who wanted to jump in for something. And, right. then, we'd, and then we would go back to my espionage campaign for a season two. And we started doing this sort of rotation thing then. And what it did was, A, it helped attendance. Because people mm-hmm. could say, yeah, I can do this one, but I can't do that one. And so when people were in, they were in. And mm-hmm. um, it allowed for us to have less GM burnout because we mm-hmm. got time off. And it allowed us to deal with kind of complicated schedules. And ever since then, we've been doing that. And I have I thought that was really great. You can still tell long-term stories that last years, you just keep asking for consent to re-up, right? And you get space to mm-hmm. have time off. And um, that was really, really great. And so it always sort of amuses me when... I see people say, oh, that's this terrible new scourge because of the stream errors. Like, oh, no, actually, people have been doing that for quite some time. And uh, it's just that it works really well on streams. But no, I think I think that's a brilliant technique. I'm glad you had both the the group that you did where you could trade off yep. the GMing responsibilities, and you know when you got a group together, even if they knew that they were going to be redeployed mm-hmm. elsewhere, they would be able to finish that game with you all. That's right. I think that's really cool. One of the things that helped make me the the kind of RPGer that I am today is because we did that. That means that we were all exposed to a lot of really different systems, right? So. Mm. We were like, hey, somebody said, I really want to run Stormbringer. And we're like, okay. And then we did it. You know what I mean? Like we'll, like, we'll do anything for like 10, 12 sessions. Sure. And so I got to play the number of games of different types and sorts and systems that I got to play and under different GMs really expanded my understanding of the hobby a lot. And I mm-hmm. played games I never would have and experienced things I never would have. And it's been really good for me as a player and as a GM to have had that experience. And I understand that A, not everyone can have that experience because if you have only one group that you can ever play with and that group Mm -hmm. only wants to play one game, whatever that game might be, you may not be able to have that sort of diversity of game experience and like, that's just what it is. Um, But it was really good for me and it has really impacted the way that I play and also the way that I GM. And so that has been, I, for me, it was very valuable. It sounds like it. So the game that you're running is mm-hmm. Fate of Cthulhu. Yes. How is that different from Call of Cthulhu? Call of Cthulhu, um, which is one of these early games, was very important because it was a... A lot of games at this point in time, not all of them, but a lot of games were um, class and level based. And here comes Call of Cthulhu, which is not. It is... Uh, the original Call of Cthulhu is basically point... It's a point by system with percentile dice. Um, right. It is a system that does not necessarily emphasize combat. I mean, you can get into a fight if you want to. However, Cthulhu does not care about your bullets and uh, will eat you. Um, But then also really sort of taking into account the psychological inner world of your character in a way Mm -hmm. that, um, let's say, early D&D had no mechanics for your inner life or your inner world, uh, which is not a critique of D&D. D&D from its start was very much about archetypes. Right. You think about like sort of pulp archetypes and uh, white hats and black hats and sort of larger than life characters where the the idea is that you're an icon. And so like doing a lot of like 
inner inner work is not the point of that particular genre. Uh, but it was for Call of Cthulhu, sort of with their sanity mechanics and just a lot of things about that. Now, Call of Cthulhu itself, as it is set up, it is characters are a little fragile, right? The story that it's telling mechanically, you can mess with mechanics to tell slightly different stories, but the kind of thematics of Call of Cthulhu is about regular people who are not necessarily, they're not, they're not super powered, they're not um, massive over the top heroes, who realize something very wrong is happening in the world. And the only way to stop it, and that people will not believe you basically, and the only way to stop it is to learn more about it so you can figure out, it's about investigation, to figure out how to stop this terrible thing, which is going to be the end of the world. The only problem is, the more you learn about the thing which you need to do in order to stop it, the less your attachment to reality becomes. And so it's about mm-hmm. this sort of um, tension between losing yourself and your mind, your sanity, in order to stop something horrible from happening to the world. And how can you hold on to the shreds of who you are long enough to stop this apocalypse? But in some ways, if you want to think about cosmic horror as a genre, the genre is um, that there are things beyond our knowledge that we do not understand, um, that we might call gods, but they're not. It's just they're so far out of our understanding. And those things are hostile to us or indifferent to us in a way that is still destructive. And they will destroy us, but it is not yet, they are not yet able to. And one of the things about the cosmic horror is that we do not know the enormity of this terror, right? That there's like, oh, there's a serial killer terror. That's one thing. But the idea that nothing you understand about reality is true. And if you actually understood reality, you would find out that there is no benign, benevolent anything looking out for us. It is something so awful. And that the best you can do is to stop that awfulness from returning for the next thousand years. And that's good enough, right? If you can, if you can do it. Uh, so there's no ultimate victory, but there's victory for the next millennia, that sort of thing. And it's a right. very sort of existential crisis sort of genre. Call of Cthulhu, the RPG, and a lot of the works that people did afterwards were very inspired by the idea of the cosmic horror, that there's a, a horror that's on a different level than just uh, the kind that we were normally used to. They basically low-key ejected a lot of that sort of racism, sexism, and uh, xenophobia. Um, mm-hmm. They they were like, let's get rid of that. Let's get rid of that sort of a thing and try to, like, let's take the core of this idea that that is not exclusive to Lovecraft and let's do something with that. And so I think um, what I think is sort of ironic is that a lot of people's relationship to Call of Cthulhu and the Cthulhu mythos, they think is from Lovecraft, but it's actually from people who have redone Lovecraft afterwards to make it less gross. And so we attribute a lot of these things to him, which are actually reinterpretations by people done later. Call of Cthulhu, very um, deadly. People are very low powered. Um, There's a bit of a grimness to it because it's kind of like a grim horror, like horror being about sort of being disempowered in various ways and Mm -hmm. about sacrifice. Fate of Cthulhu, when it came out, was very controversial within a certain circle. There was hullabaloo about the game because in the book, they did a couple of things uh, in their version of dealing with the Cthulhu mythos. First off, mechanically, Fate is quite different from Call of Cthulhu, which I can talk about in a second, but I want to talk about thematics. One of the things they did, like it was like on page two, they were like, hey, H.P. Lovecraft was a big old racist, and we just want to acknowledge that he was a big old racist and that he was problematic and he did some problematic things and we're not going to do those things. And I remember when I read that, I was like, that's so awesome. How great. Mm-hmm. 
predictably, some people were very um, <laughs> were unhappy with that statement, um, and they thought it was. I don't know what they thought. Anyway, there was some like calls to boycott Fate of Cthulhu for a while because it was I don't know social justice warriory and somehow mean to H.P. Lovecraft. I don't know. Or they felt personally attacked because they love Lovecraft and and if you call Lovecraft a racist, which by the way he was, and and mm-hmm. if somebody wanted to say, well, but everybody was racist in the 1920s, a that's not true. Um, like in the sense that like, yeah, like who, what are you talking about? But also people in the 1920s were like, whoa, HP Lovecraft, you're super racist. He was uh, above and beyond the norms from the time. Uh, but right. I remember there, there were people who wanted to boycott the game. And very luckily that just did not happen because I really appreciated the fact that this game has been very thoughtful about its um, relationship to the mythos, but also it's very thoughtful about what its representation of insanity. Uh, usually in these stories, people's minds deteriorate uh, because they cannot, in various ways. Um, and that's called the sanity mechanic. And Fate of Cthulhu was thinking, ooh, we don't know how we feel about that because there's a lot of discourse in terms of um, ableism and neurodiversity. And mm-hmm. one could argue that really what, it's called sanity, but really what Call of Cthulhu is really talking about is PTSD. Um, mm-hmm. Really, that's kind of like what what it's talking about they moved away from that in this game. Like you can still think about deterioration, uh, but they they have framed it differently thematically. Um, instead, in, instead of sanity or loss of sanity, what you have is corruption. And the PCs, when they get in contact with the great old ones um, or these things that become corrupted and that corruption, it manifests as a deterioration of self in some way. It could be uh, physical, it could be mental. Uh, and what that deterioration is could be things like you start um, bleeding black ichor, or mm-hmm. you gain wings. Um, you things manifest about you that that indicate that you have been touched, and you're one step closer to these things that humanity was not meant to know. Oh, and that's really interesting. It's really interesting, but it also gives you a power, right? Mm-hmm. So each time you get corrupted, you get some kind of power that is above and beyond what other people can do which might help you, you know, stop the bad thing. Fate is a game that is mechanically very, very easy. It's mechanically very easy. But conceptually, if you're coming from a different paradigm, it's sometimes hard to understand it. It doesn't have, for example, and it says this, it does not have hit points. And people mm-hmm. are like, what do you mean you don't have hit points? And like, well, it doesn't have hit points. Like, well, but you have stress boxes. Like, yeah, but stress boxes are, are not hit points. Um, and it has consequences instead of hit points right you mm-hmm. if you are not able to withstand that your troubles um, then you get a consequence and that consequence could be a broken leg or it could be that you are ostracized from your social scene but one of the core things and this ties into corruption which actually ties into the ways in which uh, the audience can help our players a little bit um, is that everything is based on aspects so in fate you create five sentences or phrases to describe who your character is and that's your like you know other uh, other systems might have um attributes like strength or dexterity or things like that um right. intelligence it, uh, fate doesn't fate just has five descriptors that you would make up about your character one is your high concept which is how you would describe your character to other people and then mm-hmm. your trouble which is what gets you into trouble and then you know three other aspects uh, so if you wanted to uh describe maybe captain america right your high, his mm-hmm. high concept might be um a time-traveling super soldier who is fighting for 
truth and justice. I don't know. That might be your your yeah. your high concept. High concept. Right. Maybe his trouble is an enemy that is chasing him. It could be that he is too rigid. Like you can like decide what the what the trouble is. And you can do things like your mm-hmm. other aspects could be something like, you know, really good in a fight, or it could be um hard to convince, stubborn, or it could be founding member of the of the Avengers. And all of those aspects are true. And they enable you to do things in the universe. If you say that you're a time-traveling super soldier, then that's true, which means you know things. Right? Like, they're just things that you know and that you can do. And so these these aspects are the things that enable you to sort of move into the universe. And there's also skills. But um, it is those aspects that allow you to spend fate points to make yourself better, to help you sort of get through things. And uh, the way that corruption works in... Fate of Cthulhu is there are these little fate, uh, these corruption clocks. They're little, they're, I think they're four ticks on them. And when mm-hmm. you interact with these things, uh, you get corruption. Uh, and when you fill up that corruption bar, one of your aspects becomes corrupted and it changes into something that indicates the corruption you have. It also gives you a power, uh, but you are then one step corrupted and you have five aspects. And when all five of them become corrupted, you lose your character. Your character is no is now basically pulled into the influence of the great old ones so that they are no longer playable. So um, we, I do have, a, as one of the donations, we only have three donations, and one of the donations is that you can turn back their corruption, corruption clock by one uh, mm-hmm. for a bit of a donation, just, you know, huh, to help them because, and, here's, and there's the tension. These right. characters need to go forward to try to stop the, the badness, but doing so brings them closer to losing themselves. Uh, so fate itself is a bit more cinematic. It's a bit more, um, the players, uh, the characters are more uh, powerful, generally speaking. I, I think um, in a lot of fate games, development is much slower. You kind of start where you're going to be. So the characters are pretty strong. They're pretty resilient. They have a lot of means with which they can, um, in-game, try to affect the world. You can use your fate points to declare a story detail, to re-roll, to give yourself a bonus. So they have a lot they can do in terms of agency uh, to be able to try to overcome their the problems that they have. I think about fate as a system as being about what are you willing to sacrifice to get what you want, right? Will you will you sacrifice that fate point? You'd only, you only have three. Will you mm-hmm. sacrifice your, your aspects of who you are to help fight the old ones? And so there's like a really interesting themes that are, are really facilitated by the system itself about sacrifice. And I should say the big thing, this is the, this is the big, the big uh, pitch for Fate of Cthulhu, which I think is really fun, is that whereas many uh, Cthulhu games are set in a time, like 1920s, Cthulhu, you're doing your stuff, or like mm-hmm. 1980s, Cthulhu, you're doing your stuff, 1890s, Cthulhu, you're doing your stuff. This is, has a different uh, setup, and that setup is Terminator. So you know how in Terminator, uh, mm-hmm. there's a war between the robots and the humans, and then the humans are basically losing the war. And so they're like, oh no, what do we do? We've got to send somebody back in time to save Sarah Connor. Ta-da, right? Um, yeah. And that's important. So that is basically, in many ways, the conceit of Fate of Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. We start in the future where, uh, you know, in most Cthulhu games, you're, the heroes are trying to stop the great old one from arriving. Well, in Fate of Cthulhu, the Great Old One has arrived. The, the Great Old One arrived in the future. It is not looking good for humanity. Humanity is on the brink of extinction. And so they send people back in time to try to stop the, the timeline, to sort of disrupt the timeline, to stop the Great Old One from returning. And so with Fate of Cthulhu, the players will be a mix of people from the future or from the present who are trying to go and stop 
what happened. Uh, try to find these right. sort of nexus points of, of uh, time where something really important happened and they want to try to stop them. And so our players are going to go back in time or already be back there. And they're going to try to go back to these points where they think, where they think um, something really important happened that brought helped brought, bring forth the great old one. And they're going to try to stop those things. But there's a lot of uncertainty. Like, are you doing the right thing? Is this is this the way to go? Is this the way to do it? And so, and also, can they? Can they stop? Can they can they get this thing happening? Can they save Sarah Connor? And if they do Sarah save Sarah Connor, was that the right choice? So there's like a lot of uncertainty uh, in terms of trying to sort of mess with the timeline and mm-hmm. uh, sacrifice. So I'm, I'm very excited about sort of like a time traveling uh, action horror adventure. So it, with you actually kind of led into my uh, next question is like, what kind of game of what kind of encounters are you uh, looking for? are you planning to to have for them like is this going to be a very cerebral game with a lot of puzzles and things like that or is there going to be a lot of smashy smashy things um or or somewhere in between uh with time travel i imagine Mm -hmm. it's probably going to be more about puzzles yes but some of those puzzles but some of those puzzles are violent (laughs) (laughs) oh now now see now what you've done is you've created in my mind a mimic that is that has come to life like i like a rubik's cube and Mm -hmm. i'm doing the thing and then all of a sudden it comes to life and bites three of my fingers off it might Um, you don't know and then you're like oh no i've lost like and then all of a sudden here's the thing the rubik's cube which which i imagine this rubik's cube of yours was probably like you got it when you were very, very young and you've played with this mm-hmm. Rubik's Cube your entire life. And maybe you you carried it with you in your backpack. Uh, and it was always very important to you, this, this uh, Rubik's Cube. It's like one of your touchstones. And mm-hmm. what does it mean for you at this moment when this thing that has always been your comfort comes alive and starts chewing your fingers slowly? I would imagine that might be disconcerting. <laughs> Just slightly, <laughs> you know? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And it keeps um, eating your fingers slowly, yep. knuckle by knuckle. Uh, and what do you do? Like, that's the, what do uh, you do? Scream and throw it on the other end of the room and go looking for my machete to <laughs> chop it into pieces. <laughs> and then what if it starts calling to you as you're looking for your machete? And it says, don't you love me? Don't yeah. you love me? So there's both smashy smashy because you're going to get mm-hmm. machete, but also a little creepy, creepy and a little bit of a puzzle. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and so I, I'm excited for that. But also as a GM, I am. Um, uh, I like to think of myself as a referee mm-hmm. in the sense that I know what the universe is doing, but I have no expectations for what the players should do. So there may be people who want to smash them, but I'm so I'm totally fine if the players are able to talk their way out of it. I like to I like to set up the pins uh to set up the players for success uh, and success might be that you know they're creeped out uh in a safe way because we're going to use three different uh safety te- safety safety tools. Well, they will have goals and I expect they will try to complete those goals in some kind of a way and that might be smashy smashy, it might be thinking about it or talking about it or stealthy. I don't know what they're going to do. And yeah. I, for me as a GM, I'm always excited to find out. I always hear people say, oh, isn't it so terrible when the players ruin your plans? I was like, no, 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 <laughs> it's not. I don't, I don't have plans. The people in the game have plans, but I am just here to 
support the players and give them what they need, which might be terror. Uh, but you know what I mean? Like, and so like I, I, my plans are never ruined by the players. My plans are only, uh, my plans are the players' plans. And so I'm very excited because we've got a great group of players to, I'm really excited to give them a great environment, some really good challenges, uh, some puzzles, some questions, and really good questions um, about, mm-hmm. oh, gosh, what, what should they do? And is what they're doing the right thing? Um, mm-hmm. And that might be a smashy smash. Uh, but, you know, in, the Cthul- in worlds of Cthulhu, smashy smashes, ooh, mm. like sometimes you, just don't, you don't want to get that close. You know what I mean? Sometimes you just don't want to get yeah. that close to the things. Uh, yeah. Uh, so sometimes you need a sniper rifle instead of yes. a longsword. Yes, um, you do. Sometimes, sometimes that's better. Uh, <laughs> although with a sniper rifle, you're probably going to see the unnoble horror. And that that's a whole other can of worms. It is. Uh, <laughs> but we don't want to give too much away and we nope. do need to wrap things up. When is your game airing at what time? Oh, gosh, this is exciting. The game is going to start on uh, the 20th which is a Saturday, unless I have lost my mind, which I, I do not think I have. Uh, so it starts on the 20th, which is um, not this week, but next week. Uh, mm-hmm. And it will air at 6 p.m. Eastern time over at Weave uh, the Tale. And we have some old um, old faces and new faces. And mm-hmm. um, so it's going to be really exciting. Well, thank you so much for joining me um, for this episode. I look forward to talking to you after your game has started. Um, we'll do like a, a check-in and I'll be checking in with your cast members and Wonderful. see, you know, if they've lost their um, uh, their sense of self yet. <laughs> How, have they been corrupted? Have they? Uh, and the best part about it is that very often, oh, I'm such an evil GM sometimes, very often it's their choice. Would you like to be corrupted? Because if you would like to, I will corrupt you if you want, you know, or or you don't have to, but you could then give up this other thing instead. What, what would you like to do? Just, you know, just let them decide what they want to do there. <laughs> so so the, the game's tagline or, or the game's ad should be uh, Return of Carto- Carcosa. Mm-hmm. Would you like me to corrupt you? <laughs> yeah yeah that's about right that's about right <laughs> cut it i'll I'll cut that out and i'll i'll send it off to uh to our person who's making trailers for all the shows Excellent. um and uh you stream on twitch as well for yourself i do i do um i i'm found all over the place but when it comes to rpgs uh that i gm the big thing that i do is i just have i have just started today's Monday, so uh, Friday, so just a couple days ago, was the mm-hmm. season premiere of City of Light and Shadow, which is a fake game that I'm running over on my channel, Trooper SJP, and it is a French Resistance campaign. It's historical, set in 1941. But in this moment, regular people, not people who had superpowers, not even army people, but sometimes school teachers and poets and grandmas and all sorts of people, they stood up. And they mm-hmm. they formed a resistance and they did what they could to save people, to make a difference. And uh, and I really want to, for me at least, I know it's amazing to think about what it's like to have magic and to be able to fly and all of that. But sometimes I really want to emphasize, and I think part of this is also part of my uh, time in the military, that people in the military are just regular people. Do you know what I mean? Like people mm-hmm. like want to somehow imagine that, that people in the military are, I don't know, 
superheroes, but actually they're just regular people like everyone else. They have feelings and they have thoughts. And, and um, I just think about the ways in which regular people have done the supernatural, right? The most yeah. amazing things. And so this campaign in many ways is about regular people in a really terrible circumstance and sort of honoring, um, honoring the ways in which we all can, can step up and do something. And I think that is the perfect place to, to leave things. Um, so thanks again for, uh, for being here. Thank you all for listening and we will catch you next time on Weaver's Circle. Thank you to our guest for joining me for this episode of Weaver's Circle. Be sure to check out their social media links in the show notes and tune in live for their game. Weaver's Circle is mixed and produced by Spence of ResonantMoon.com. Weaver's Circle is owned by Weave the Tail Gaming Channel and its parent company, Penny for a Tail, LLC. You can reach out to the podcast and find out more about our games at PennyForATail.com. Music in our intro and outro is Fearless First by Kevin McLeod, used with permission. Weaver's Circle is created under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, for international license. You can download it and share it, just don't change it or sell it. Remember, today is a good day to roll some dice. Thank you for listening.